Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. My name is Angela Saylor, and I'm the Vice President of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our president, Kay Coles James, we are so delighted to welcome you to the launch of our first Principles Town Hall series. In the midst of America's cultural crisis, parents like you across the country have asked us how to pass the American legacy to the next generation. The Heritage Foundation's first Principles Town Hall will feature our very own Dr. Joe LaConte and a panel of concerned Americans who will speak into this moment of crisis, offering families an honest understanding of our history, a deeper appreciation of America's political and cultural achievements, as well as an appreciation of the classical Christian tradition. We believe teaching America's founding principles in civics education and an informed community with involved parents offer the best possible roadmap to a flourishing civil society for all Americans. Our first session, why, why Future Leaders Need to Understand the Past, again, will be Dr. Joe LaConte, director of our B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies for Heritage's Fulner Institute. Joe is a former associate professor of history at the King's College in New York City. He's Heritage's leading scholar on John Locke and all of the New York Times bestseller, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, how J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism. So as we welcome Joe Vacante, we encourage you to send your questions throughout the event as well so that we can have an opportunity to respond to them later in the program. Joe, welcome to the, to the screen. Well, thank you, Angela, and thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us today. Before we get into the, the uh, panel discussion here with our all-star all panel and a, a, a Q&A, let me just offer some opening remarks. I'll keep them brief to come before us. And one of the obvious questions on the table for all of us is, why does history matter? Why does history matter in the first place? The Christian author C.S. Lewis had a pretty good answer to that question. He's giving a talk back in October uh, 1939 at Oxford when Great Britain was at war with Nazi Germany and the air was thick with fears of a Nazi invasion. So at that moment of existential crisis, Lewis insisted that the study of history was essential to a free society. Listen to what he said. Perhaps most of all, we need intimate knowledge of the past. And then he went on. A man who's lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village, right? The scholar, historian, has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his age. Well, we are awash in a cataract of nonsense, right? A hateful, an emotionally unhinged attack on the history and the legitimacy of American democracy, whether it's coming from the media 
from the entertainment industry, from the sports industry, from the business community, or of course our schools or universities, it's an assault on memory, an assault on memory, and we must fight back. And one of the ways we fight back is by remembering. Uh, that's what good history does, of course, right? It helps us to remember. It's a gateway to gratitude. It's easy to forget that for all of our problems and failings and contradictions to millions of people around the world, America is still, in the words of historian Bill McClay, the land of hope. The land of hope. We continue to embody the highest ideals and aspirations of Western civilization. Let's just go back to the Greeks for a moment. The courtroom in Athens in the year 399 BC, a 70-year-old man is on trial for his life. The accused is a war hero, philosopher. For the better part of three decades, he has dominated the intellectual life of Athens. His name, of course, is Socrates. Socrates is accused of insulting the gods and of corrupting the youth of Athens. How is he corrupting the youth? He's teaching people to think, to think on their own. That's why he's on trial. That's why the establishment wants to cancel Socrates. And he knows full well that if he's found guilty, he's probably going to be sentenced to death. And yet he's defiant. Listen to a few words of Socrates. Some will say, are you not ashamed, Socrates, of a course of life which is likely to bring you to an untimely end? To him I may fairly answer, he says. You're mistaken. A man who is good for anything ought not to calculate the chance of living or dying. He ought only to consider whether in doing anything he's doing right or wrong acting the part of a good man or of a bad man. And he goes on, you, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, are you not ashamed of caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all? So he's turning it on them. He's turning the tables on them, right? They're the ones who should be ashamed. Well, the jury of Athens deliberates, finds Socrates guilty. And in the sentence, given a choice, permanent exile or death by poison. Now, what would you, if you're in Socrates' place? Well, we know what he does. He chooses death and he drinks the hemlock. So what is the enduring legacy of Socrates? What's his enduring legacy? His legacy is his willingness to die for an idea. What idea? The freedom to speak your mind in the pursuit of truth. The freedom to speak in the pursuit of truth. Put it another way. It's the principle of freedom of conscience, friends, freedom of conscience. This is one of the engines of change, the engines of reform in human history. It was pioneered by Western thinkers while being ignored by virtually everybody else in the ancient world. And the American founders knew this history. This is one of the they were fighting for in the revolution. Listen to the words of uh, Abigail Adams here. Wife of John Adams, of course, mother to John Quincy. She's writing a letter uh, to her son, to John Quincy. He doesn't want to join his father uh, in another diplomatic mission over there in Europe uh, during the Revolutionary War, 1779. John Quincy would rather get ready to go to Harvard, right? Abigail Adams is a patriot, of course, and she has a different sense of her son's responsibilities at this moment. Here's a few lines of what she wrote to him. My son. These are the times in which a genius would wish to live. It is not in the still calm of life that great characters are formed, 
The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulty, she says. Great necessities call out great virtues and form the character of the hero and the statesman. Now, if you got a letter like that from your mother, what would you do? You'd get on the boat. You'd get on that boat, and of course, John Quincy does. You'd get on the boat. When the founders hammered out their constitution in Philadelphia, they identified certain rights as the bedrock of our democratic republic, right? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to assemble. We used to know this history, and we used to honor the men and women who made it possible. But many people today, they're either ignorant of these facts and what we've achieved, or they don't have the guts to uh, defend it. The crisis playing out in our streets, in our schools, it is an assault on memory, and it's a crisis of courage. And that makes us vulnerable to propaganda, to the demagogue. George Orwell warned about this in his futuristic thriller, 1984. Here's what Orwell said. He who controls the, the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. Think about that. He who controls the past controls the future. Your children are the future leaders of this nation, and future leaders need to understand the past. And so, before I introduce the panel, I'm going to anoint all of you as amateur historians, and let's engage together in one act of historical imagination. Spring of 1944. Think back with me now. Virtually every European capital, all the major airfields and the ports, they're all controlled by the Third Reich, by the Nazis. The Democratic allies realized they're going to have to launch an amphibious invasion across the English Channel into Normandy, into northern France, into the heart of the German juggernaut in order to end the war. They call it Operation Overlord. They need a single military commander, a supreme commander over the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe, and they turn to an American farm boy <laughs> from Abilene, Kansas, Dwight D. Eisenhower. In the words of biographer Stephen Ambrose, Ike's parents taught the simple virtues of honesty, self-reliance, integrity, fear of God, and ambition. The success of the Allied struggle against the forces of Nazism now depends on the success of Operation Overlord. It will be an immensely complicated operation, right? You're trying to send 156,000 Allied soldiers, 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircraft across the channel to breach Hitler's Atlantic Wall. That's the series of military fortifications that stretch hundreds of miles across the northern coast of France. Listen to Stephen Ambrose, the biographer on this. Someone had to give the uh, bureaucracy's direction. Someone had to be able to take all the information they gathered, make sense of it, and impose order on it. Someone had to make certain that each part meshed into the whole. Someone had to decide. Someone had to take responsibility to act. It all came down to Eisenhower, he says. Only his worries were infinite. Only he carried the awesome burden of command. Now, before the actual invasion, Ike prepared a letter to be delivered to the press in case things went badly. Here's a piece of that letter. Our landings have failed. I have withdrawn the troops. He troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. 
or they won't have to send that letter. In addition to all the, the burden of command, though, Eisenhower has to worry about the weather. The weather. No matter what the date for the planned invasion, the weather would be decisive because a bad storm could disable the ships, leave the entire operation helplessly exposed to German fire on the beaches. The invasion is planned for June 6, 1944, D-Day. Postponing could jeopardize the entire strategy in Europe, but moving ahead in bad weather could be a disaster. Eisenhower has to depend on the counsel of his chief weatherman, Captain J.F. Stagg. June 3rd, Captain Stagg has bad news. A high-pressure storm is moving in. What should he do? Sunday evening, June 4th, Stagg predicts a break in the storm, a window of about 36 hours of relatively calm weather. But the early morning hours of June 6 do not look good. Eisenhower wakes at 3.30 in the morning to wind of hurricane proportions rattling his trailer. He and his generals and his weatherman meet in the mess room. Captain Stagg insists that the break he's been looking for is on its way and that the weather will be clearing in a matter of hours. Well, here's the question. What would you do if you didn't know the outcome? What would you do if you were in Eisenhower's shoes? For a month before the invasion, Eisenhower carved out about 15 minutes a day to interrogate his weatherman. Why? Why? Because he wants to test his judgment. He wants to see what Captain J.M. Stagg is made of. He has to know. He has to know if Stagg's predictive powers can be trusted when the time of testing comes. And there's a question for us, ladies and gentlemen. Are we becoming, are your children becoming the kind of people who can be true when the time of testing arrives? Even Winston Churchill questioned the wisdom of this cross-channel attack, telling Eisenhower on one occasion, when I think of the peoples of Normandy choked with the flower of American and British youth, I have my doubts, General, I have my doubts. Well, if Eisenhower had any doubts about the invasion, he's resolved them. The Supreme Commander holds one last meeting with his circle of, his, uh, of advisors. No new weather reports will be available for hours. The ships are already sailing in the channel. If they're to be called back, it has to be now. And Ike is the only man who can do it. He turns once more to his advisors for their judgment. And then he offers his own. Okay, he says. Let's go. The Allied invasion at Normandy. It creates the beachhead in Europe that is so desperately required. Hitler's Atlantic Wall is shattered. And now America's arsenal of democracy can begin the work of liberating a continent from the barbarism of Nazi Germany. A farm boy from Abilene, Kansas, and his weatherman made all the difference. It is quite a story. It's a deeply American story. Welcome to the land of hope. That's a piece of the answer to the question, why does history matter? Now, let me introduce our panel, and then we'll get into a discussion here, panel. Uh, Will Johnson, based in Denver, Colorado, a father of three uh, school-aged children, member of his school district's accountability committee, writes on education and uh, education-related issues. Richard Vandenbosch, 
an educator from Modesto, California, beautiful Modesto, has been in education for 30 years, teaching history and political science at both the secondary and college levels. And Stacy Washington, a mother of three, former director of our local school district's Board of Education, host of the national radio show, Stacy on the Right. That sounds like a good place to be. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us here for this all-star panel. Uh, I've got a few questions I'm going to put on the table for you guys, and then we throw it open to the audience. And I'll be looking there in the chat box for questions as well. Let me put this one on the table here, uh, all-star panel. What is at stake, as you understand it, what is at stake in these debates uh, over, over our children's education? And maybe as an auxiliary question, not only what's at stake, why is the subject of history American history, world history, why is it especially important in these debates as you understand it? Will, let me throw it over to you first and then we'll, we'll, we'll keep on packing it. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, thanks, Joe, and thanks for that, that great intro. Uh, you know, what, what I think is at stake is the soul of our country. So no big deal, right? Are, are, we, are we forming you know, grateful and resilient kids that are proud to be Americans uh, or guilt-ridden, helpless kids low with America and want to fundamentally transform it. It's, it's an assault on memory, as you said. And I think there's there's three main reasons why history is so important in this, in this battle. Number one, uh, freedom is never more than one generation from extinction, as, as Ronald Reagan said. And so given that, we need to purposefully transmit to children the American idea, all right, the principles and values that bind us together. And we transmit those values in large part by how we teach our history. So these values, these values, you know, inalienable rights, freedom of speech, equal bassoonum, limited government, those are not the natural state of human affairs. You know, 99% of human history, these were, these were not, not practiced. So we need to teach them. We need to intentionally practice them in, in order to preserve them. So in, in other words, you know, kids need to know what it means to be an American, what to fight for, what to cherish, what to preserve, and, and, and what to pass on. And our history tells this story. But if we if we preach not only moral and cultural relativism, but that you know America is defined by racism, that we're an oppressor at home and abroad, and that our founding principles were lies, then our children are going to feel you know ashamed for being an American and not know what to stand for. And the idea of America is at is at risk of extinction. I think the second point, and you touched on it, is, is how we view our past will shape our future. You know, a true understanding of our history acknowledges our imperfections and our sins as it should. But it, it also highlights that it's our founding principles which have helped us overcome them to the extent that we have. Our, our history is a story of you know, striving to live up to our founding principles better. And, and the false history, though, that is taught in so many schools today, it teaches our next generation that our systems should be torn down in pursuit of utopia. But an honest history tells the next generation that we should keep building on our progress. Right? And that though perfection isn't possible because you know, human beings aren't perfect, working to live up to our founding principles is how we will continue that, that progress. Then I think the third point is gratitude. Uh, is, you know, it, it is a gateway to gratitude. I loved how you put that, uh, that our history is. You know, basically, our, our kids should know that you know, Memorial Day isn't just the day when the pool's open for the summer, uh, for example. They, they should know why they're so blessed to live in this greatest country on earth. They should know what life was like and is in so many countries today and how their freedoms were fought for, paid for by those who came before them. Because that, that encourages gratitude. It, it's, it's not guilt and victimhood. 
And gratitude makes for a more fulfilling and happy life and encourages a responsibility to pay it forward, right? To pass on the true history of our country to the next generation and preserve the soul of America in the process. And that's what I want my kids to do. Yes, Will, thank you for that. I especially like what you said about purposely transmitting these ideas, this heritage. Stacy, why don't we uh, uh, maybe get you to unpack this a little bit as well. What's at stake in these debates over education and particularly the importance of the subject of history? But, you know, take it wherever you want there, Stacy. And what's really at stake, helping to bear down on that for us? And Stacy, we can't hear you. Uh, I think, thank, thank you, Joe. I think one of the most important things for us to remember when we're talking about children is that our natural assumption is that however things are for us is the way they've always been. So without history, we don't have the perspective of knowing that not only have things never been this way before, but the normative situation for human beings and humanity writ large is one of slavery, suffering, and oppression. And so we are in a unique situation in America where we're born into a situation where we have liberties that are given to us by God, but are enshrined in our constitution. And at all times, those liberties are under assault. And so children just assume, you know, I, you know, I live in the suburbs. Most people live in the suburbs. That's not true. Um, I, I live in relative peace and security. Most people live in relative peace and security. That's not even true here in America, and it's especially not true around the world. And so uh, in all things, our perspective should be one of appreciation, as Will so aptly described. But then the, the big standard bearer for appreciation and gratitude is that you don't take it for granted and you seek to preserve it in all ways possible. And so history gives us a unique opportunity to do that because the stories are fascinating and children are really drawn in by stories. They love to be told how other people lived. And then you get to experience that yourself when you read historical books that whether it's historical fiction or it's actual you know, biographies of people, you get to step in their shoes momentarily and live as they live, as they describe the things that they went through and their paths to greatness. And so we have so many great authors alive today who are currently writing many biographies and uh, works of, of nonfiction about some of the greatest people to have ever lived in our country who shaped the very lives that we lead today and have given us the, this heritage of freedom. And so I just, I, in, in my parenting with my husband, of our three children, we've sought to give them opportunities to explore that and then talk about it and then kind of live it out. Um, for example, we have a heritage of having the right to own firearms. So we've allowed the children to be in gun clubs and to shoot firearms and to experience them instead of just talking about guns, to actually use them as tools and to respect them as dangerous forms. You know, you can, you can use them for weaponry. You can also use them to make war. You can use them to hunt and, and bring food to your table. You can use them for self-defense and you can use them for sport. Um, respecting guns as tools in that way prevents them from being indoctrinated into a, a thought pattern that would make them think that guns are the actual aggressors, that guns jump up and do mass shootings on their own. Things like that are not possible for you to indoctrinate a person into once they've fired firearms on their own and know their proper safety and storage and have had training. And so that's just one example. But I, I think, you know, we, we have a responsibility. And when we're derelict in that, we see the result. The result is that we have been inactive and all over the country, 
people are being taught things that are not true about America. And so riding the ship is, it means involvement uh, in the way that Will is doing, as I've done in the past, being a, a vice president on a school board, director and secretary. Uh, and so I just encourage people to open their minds up to the possibility that our freedom and its protection is lying in their very own hands. Everyone watching this webinar, anyone who may watch it later, the freedom that we hold is literally in every one of our own hands and it's ours to protect. Wow, that is beautifully, powerfully stated, Stacey. Thank you so much for that. I especially like what you said in the beginning there about, uh, <coughs> excuse me, about the reality of how where most societies have been throughout history, how rare a thing freedom and civilization is. Maybe raising three kids reminds you of that on a regular basis. I don't know, but it's a great point to make. Uh, Richard, take that question as well. What's at stake in the debates over education? Why does history matter? Take it wherever you want here, Richard, in this opening volley. Well, I mean, I love what all of you said. I mean, really the root of good government is and always will be good citizenship informed by civic literacy. And the part that scares me is one in five Americans can even list a right that is listed in the First Amendment, uh, a right that you know Congress cannot in, encroach upon. One third of people can even name the three branches of government, let alone what the proper function of government is. Uh, and even 10% of the people think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. So that's a little bit scary. So when we're talking about what's at stake and, and why is it important, um, we have some serious uh, issues going on with, with specific education. And um, it was interesting, I was watching a, a webinar yesterday with Sonia Sotomayor and she said they spend $50 a student on STEM education and five cents on civic, edu civic education. So that should be concerning to everybody here. And we also, of course, need to be critical consumers of information and be cognizant of disinformation that is out there that is really tilting the scales of, of civic education. So really in a global environment where liberal democracies are facing a crisis of confidence and where authoritarian regimes work to threaten the foundational premise of the rule of law, it's essential that our country pursues a strong foundation in civic education because the reality is the fall of empires usually occurs from within. Well, thank you, Richard, for that really profound thoughts there to unpack as well. Now, guys, I'd like to get uh, as practical as we can here, because I know we've got an audience here of parents who are probably wondering uh, some of these questions like, for example, what would be some of the most effective and constructive ways to engage with the teachers? Because they're such gatekeepers, aren't they, uh, for our children? How do we engage with teachers in discussing you know, our, our children's educational experience, what a, instead of it necessarily being adversarial, how can it be constructive? You guys have all had experience, you've all modeled that in your own lives, in your own civic uh, actions. And I think, I, I've got to guess, we got a lot of parents out there who are wondering, okay, how do we do that? How do we engage those teachers in ways that are gonna reflect my values, what I want my children to, to know and to understand? I'll just throw that open. Anybody who wants to jump in there first on that. Uh, well, okay, I'll go first. I, I certainly, um, we had a lot of experience engaging with teachers as our children went from preschool into grade school. And so our very first day dropping our oldest off, we, you know, my husband, we said goodbye at the door, but I took her to school and I went straight in uh, and met her teacher 
for the first day. And we'd actually had one of those little getting to know you meetings where you bring the kindergartners in and they play with Legos. You stand around and talk to the other parents and kind of size each other up. So I'd already met her, but I went in on the first day just to reiterate that we're partners. And I told her that we were on a, the legs on a three-legged stool for Maya's education. It was the parents and it was the teacher and it was Maya. And I said, at no point would we ever seek to undercut one of the legs of the stool and that the communication would be the seat of the stool that we all shared together. And if at any point they needed assistance with us, from us with, with Maya and engaging her, if she was misbehaving or if they were having difficulty or if she was unable to learn something and she needed outside help, that she could reach us at any point. She could come by our house or call us or uh, anything, any form of communication, email, anything like that. And then since I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, I just volunteered as much as I could and I spent so much time in the building, a lot of the kids thought I was one of like some other grade level teacher, but I wasn't. I was just a mom who was there a lot because I really thought that the school would be going in the wrong direction without my input, not because I have a, a great educational background, but because as a common sense parent on the conservative side and a Christian, I knew that my viewpoint was in the minority there. And so I wanted to make sure that it, it was able to be expressed and felt but not in an adversarial way, but because of that interaction, they came to rely on me a great deal and my opinion meant something to them because we had a relationship. And so, you know, I went, I went full hog. I gave gifts at Christmas and her birthday. Um, I worked with other parents on things that she needed, like making copies, going on field trips. And that assistance, whether it was once or twice a year from some of the moms or regularly like with me, it meant that she had a relationship and a group of people she could rely on when she needed help because they didn't always have TAs the way they have now. That was something that was just getting started back then. Maya's 21 now and a junior in college studying biology with a minor in chemistry. But at the time she was a kindergartner and we were really, I was just concerned that she might fall through the cracks because of the black American achievement gap. So my recommendation to parents is you go tell that teacher that you want to be their partner. You, and this is not about politics. It's not about partisanship. It's about your child and that relationship. And then you get to know the principal a little bit um, because if your child does get in a fix, you know, where they, they maybe get into a little fight or a little disagreement with a friend, you've already met the principal. It won't be the first time you're talking with them if your child gets in trouble. And that happens to the best of kids. It's not about being a bad kid. So uh, get in there, meet these people, communicate with them and expect them to, to come up to your standard, to where you want them to be in communication and in their teaching style with your child. And then if you have a problem with a handout or a direction that the curriculum is taking, you, you have a leg to stand on. You can go to them and say, look, we know each other. Why are you teaching my child about sex in kindergarten? Or why are you telling my child that gender is between their legs or their, their head, between their ears and not between their knees? What, what is all of this discussion about gender-free bathrooms? You can go to them and express yourself and they will listen because you have a relationship. And then when you escalate, when you go to that curriculum and instruction committee, when you go to that board meeting, you're standing on authority because you know you've got your teacher behind you. These teachers actually don't wanna teach this stuff. They're doing it because their jobs are on the line or they're told that they're the minority. So when we express ourselves and we get in there and we mix it up with them and treat them like people, they respond by standing with us when we're standing up for our kids and really their purity, their, uh, their innocence. We should be standing up for that and teachers will do it too, but they need a little bit of help and we are the people who can provide that. Wow. Stacey, I think you just gave us a graduate level seminar on how to how to uh, engage with the parents. That is just fabulous stuff. Let me give these gentlemen a, a chance to 
uh, weigh in as well, effective ways to reach out uh, to parents. We just heard a, just a terrific, uh, um, uh, almost a bottomless well of resources there from Stacy. it seems. So go ahead, guys, weigh in. Yeah, Stacey, I, that I, was beautifully said. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Richard. Okay, uh, Stacey, as beautifully said, I think, you know, as a person in uh, public education for 30 years, um, the biggest thing is just getting involved. I got to tell you, over my years, I've seen more and more parents, and I understand the need for, you know, uh, extra income and things like that. But if you have a day off, try to get involved, volunteer, be on the student site council. I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious, but yet it's not happening. You know, I have parent conferences, and sometimes out of a class of 30, uh, I might have one parent show up, just one. And so I've seen this, this massive withdrawal of parents from what's going on, and, and sometimes it's just not really good. Um, get on the hiring committees. Try to get on school boards, uh, not just locally, maybe the county school board or the state school board, depending on what state, you know, in, in which you live. Uh, curriculum committees, curriculum adoption committees. There's a lot of options out there, too. And then ultimately, of course, like Stacy said, too, just create a relationship with, with the, the teacher. And again, you know, respectful dialogue. You know, I've had sometimes people that come after me uh, uh, that have said something, not after me, but about something that they thought was in the curriculum that actually wasn't. Uh, and so sometimes kids will misinterpret what's being said uh, and, and they just have questions. But again, respectful dialogue is, is imperative. Thank you, Richard. Will, you wanna jump in there? Sure, yeah, both. I, I completely agree with what Stacy and Richard are saying. I, I think. You know, I, we own our kids' education, right? And as Stacy said, schools should be partners with us in that. And and you know, because of that, we have a we have a right to transparency. We we should know what our kids are being taught. We have, we frankly have an obligation, I think, to know what our kids are being taught. Um, so that's that's I think you know point number one for me. This is an emotionally driven topic, right? And for good reason. But I think I think approaching it as constructive as, as we can, asking good questions. And, and there's a number of resources out there that give that kind of a, a question, you know, list for us. You know, for example, how you can ask your teacher, you know, how do you want your students to think about America and themselves after this class? Or, you know, do you think it's more important to judge by content of character or color of skin? And how do you foster that in your class? Um, or how do you encourage diversity of thought in your class? Those those types of kind of probing questions, seeking to understand, um, and I think relaying our concerns in a you know what's best for all students, uh, how do we help all students thrive uh, type type approach. You know, trying to find commonality is as hard as that is sometimes, um, but but where we can identify shared goals, then we can talk about the disagreements on how to achieve it, right? And I think that's more more productive. Um, I think the other thing to mention too is. As important it is to voice our concerns, it's also important to promote alternatives, whether that's curriculum alternatives, um, you know, reading list alternatives, things, things of that nature. And there's some great, great ones out there that help us help us to identify that. Uh, and and as Stacy said, if if the teacher isn't the one to make the decision, I think uh, you know we can we can work our way up, um, and and do so in a way that that you know promotes the thriving of all students. Thank you, Will. I think we're going to get to maybe to resources here in a bit. I want to uh, look at one of the questions that's come in, and please keep submitting questions here, uh, our audience, because it does play into one of the things we want to talk about. The question here is, given that our current system, uh, the public school monopoly, has indoctrinated our kids, isn't the best way to stop the indoctrination 
uh, allowing all parents to have the freedom and means to choose their schools. Isn't that the best way to stop the indoctrination? So having various choices in education. Uh, that really connects to this question about steps that we can take to improve the quality of education uh, in the schools uh, that our children attend. However you want to uh, uh, tackle this, this is obviously one of the big, you know, in a sense, I guess it's almost the elephant in the living room <laughs> with the indoctrination. How much can you fight for change from within? How much do you look for alternatives, create alternatives outside? Let me just throw it open to the group here, guys, your own thoughts on that, given your own engagement uh, in, in education over the years. Well, we actually took our kids out of public school because I was serving on the school board and I realized that although I was having an impact, it wasn't enough of an impact to prevent our children from uh, really receiving a lot of information that we felt was just not true, um, especially about uh, history and, and you know matters of faith. Because in world religions, which is a mandatory class for sixth graders, our daughter was taught that Jesus Christ is the founder of Christianity. Um, so she brought the book home and said, mommy, is this true? Is Jesus the founder of Christianity? And my husband just looked at me because I had been talking to him privately about possibly moving them out. And he was like, we are paying taxes in this district and we moved into this district specifically. It's the number one or number two rated district, depending on, you know, month or year in the entire state. And, you know, educational outcomes there are outstanding. It's a suburban neighborhood, uh, very, very small boutique community and we were just very, very happy there. And when he saw that, he said, well, I wonder what else is in here that she hasn't highlighted to us because she doesn't even know she's been taught something incorrect. And that kind of started our journey. And I prayed about it a lot because I could tell my husband was getting annoyed with me bringing it up um, with his work concerns and with the, what we paid for our house and everything. We had set out on a path intentionally to be in that district. And I felt very strongly that you know, now that I'm on school board and I know everything, I know what the budget is, I know who runs everything, I'm I'm on the inside and I want to leave. And he was just kind of like, what is going on here? So I started praying about it and I felt like the Lord told me to shut up. And so I did. And the kids brought their concerns to the dinner table and kind of convinced him without me saying another word. And so they ended up going to a classical Christian school for five years where they learned Latin and rhetoric and debate and uh, really how to think, how to formulate arguments, how to process information, and they memorize mounds of scripture. And so when I talk to parents now who are in public school, I don't advocate for them to leave because I feel like so many of us have done that over the past 30 years. But I also say you have, you're responsible for what your kids know and you're responsible for the outcome that they have. And so if you don't think you can make enough of an impact in public school and it's gone too far, then yes, pull them out. If it's not possible for you to do that, the pandemic has shown us that pandemic pods and parents banding together can create educational outcomes for kids that previously weren't thought to be possible because we were really married to the traditional system. And most of us, like myself, I always tell my kids, I'm not called to homeschool, even though our, our oldest did homeschool herself for her senior year and went to college that year as well. So what I, what I say to people is, you know, how can you make the educational system better? Well, volunteer, run for school board, serve on some committees, um, assist in the district strategic plan. That, when I did that, that was when I really began to understand how the district worked. And if, if in all things, if none of that works, then you have to take the step that is best for your child. But um, it, I, I think people get too hung up in, um, you know, it's, it's almost like you're in a whirly bird because each school year goes faster than the one before. As your kids are growing up, the school years move faster for you and for them. So you have to make a decision. 
I, it's as simple for me as you start off with, what do you feel like your kid isn't getting in the classroom? Oh, I don't think they're getting enough honest history where they get to kind of interact with the, the people. They're real historical figures, but they're kind of characters who teach you something. Each one of their lives teaches us something. So I just recommend that you get, like Eric Metaxas is the author you wanna get. And these are two books that I read and then I had the kids read, Seven Men, Seven Women, and then Seven More Men. There are many biographies about uh, people in, in our history that have really shaped where we live today. And then I just go from there. It, it's it's it has to be an active thing that you're doing. See, we let our phones and our screens really suck up too much of our time that we could be spending instilling these things in our kids. And so I'm not perfect at that. I watch TV too, but we have to take this into our own hands. The time for allowing liberals and the National Education Association or the or the national it's the the union the NEA letting them control everything. That's gotten us here. The way to get back is to take the control back. And it's not just, you know, we're gonna take our country back and it takes one year. It's a process that over time, we can take back what they have really, uh, they've bastardized it. They've taken education and now they're using it as a means like a Trojan horse to teach us to hate each other. If that doesn't wake you up, nothing will. White kids are being taught to hate themselves and to hate their parents. Black kids are being taught that they are victims and that they can never succeed because of some imaginary white man who's pressing them down at every moment. This imaginary white man apparently is stronger than almighty God, according to critical race theory. We've got to wake up, shake ourselves out of our stupor and get involved. And participation can be, you know, it can be very small, but if everyone was participating in a small way, many, many more people could kind of ease back a little bit, the ones who are kind of doing it all. So we need more people involved, not less, and everyone needs to feel it's their responsibility to take part in this, not just because you have kids. If you're, if you're an empty nester, it's still, your tax dollars are funding this garbage. The SECUS uh, framework, that is an NGO that was created by Planned Parenthood to instill their sexual ethos into every child in America that every woman should have at least three abortions by the end of her childbearing years. These are things we can't allow to stand, but we don't yeah. even know about them. So yeah. again, I just say get involved. Yeah, you know, Stacy, you remind me of Socrates actually as the provocateur challenging the establishment ready to go. I have a suspicion that your children, they all grew up uh, hearing about Socrates and know the Socratic method. Thank <laughs> you for that, just terrific stuff. You know, there's another question here that's come on uh, into the queue here. I wanna throw out here guys for us. Um, can you guys explain how you, in your in your own experience, now as practically as you can, how you've been able to get other parents to see this issue as a top priority? You know, uh, you know, just like parents spend all the time getting their kids to the soccer game, they, they go crazy getting to the soccer matches and all, but seeing this as a top priority, how do you help uh, parents to see it that way? How do you persuade them? What, what, what has been effective in your own experience? Richard or Will, maybe on this one. Sure. Yeah, I can I can take that one. I think you know, parents are primed to be uh, this past year, right? It, parents are just more aware, more invested in their kids' education for a variety of reasons, right? Than I think, I think in general than they ever have been before. So so parents are primed to really be to be ready to further engage in their kids' education. So I think that's 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 one thing. Um, you know, whether it's whether it's plugging in with local education groups, right? Like, you know, Facebook groups, for example, that are advocating for in-person learning. You know, that's, that's where I found a lot of, a lot of people who are like-minded, you know, on, on, on then on the curriculum side of things too. Uh, I think it's, 
I think it, it so, so it's, it's identifying, you know, where to, where to link up with those parents, right? And there's, there's, there's a number of, number of things, a number of resources that help us do that too. Uh, it's, it's also then, you know, to frame it up as, I think some of the things we've talked about, uh, why is this important? The, the words they hear, right? Whether they hear equity, whether they hear social justice, uh, things of that nature, uh, what do those words actually mean? And why, and, and explaining what those, what if you play those concepts out, how does that affect your kids' emotional, academic well-being, the emotional, academic well-being of every child? And what does that mean for the future of our country? So, so it gets back to that first topic we touched on, what's at stake? Explaining that programs and words that sound good, there's a lot more to them. And, it, and it, yeah. it's damaging to both our kids and our, and our country. Yeah, shaping their character, their their young characters, and the character of the country. Richard, you want to jump into that question again? Uh, how do you how do you help persuade parents? Yeah, this is worth an investment of time, getting engaged, make it a priority. What would you say there, Richard? Well, I don't know if I have anything more to offer than what has been said, which is we obviously have an issue out there. We have a uh, a, a problem of disinformation, a lack of information, and so again, I I I just think that within my classroom i mean i just demonstrate the importance of the value of civics education and that's all that i can do i have tried to get personally involved in different levels uh i you know whether it's dealing with the state of california or you know locally or or whatever trying to help pass on the word and you know i i help run different seminars for different organizations too and so again any way that i can get involved to try to get out the importance of of what we're talking about here today this is, is very critical i mean it's not you know it's not cliche to say so it's it's very yeah. it's critical to the longevity of our republic yeah terrific uh we got another question in the queue here guys we'll throw it out um for a concerned parent just getting started what advice do you have on how to identify the manipulation of history or indoctrination you know, those, those kinds of themes. How do you identify it as a parent? I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of parents out there who are thinking, I don't know what I don't know, you know, and this stuff is coming in. How do you, uh, what advice have you got for identifying some, some, of the, some of the really destructive stuff that's seeping into the curricula in your experience? Throw it open to the group. Well, I think one thing that the silver lining to COVID-19 has been the distance learning, because now here's the thing, pretty much everything that I do is now recorded and so i uploaded to google classroom everything's in google and i think that level of accountability is actually kind of good because now parents you know what then watch it take the time i mean i know we have busy lives but if you really care about what your child is learning take the time to actually watch what was being said and then again go through the channels that we've talked about you know the the chain of command and and let's try to have honest discussions about these types of things. And then again, follow the chain of command, go to the teacher, go to the principal, go to the superintendent, go what, whatever it takes to try to make sure that what is actually being said in the class. And again, like I said, every class that I've had, I mean, we, we've been really good about reopening early. And so we even have sports and everything else here. But But for the longest time, for nine months, everything I said in class was recorded. And I think in a lot of other states right now too, everything is on Google Classroom. And so, you know, determine the authenticity of what you think is being said and, and fact check it. That's an, an incredibly important point you've just made, I think, Richard. The opportunity for accountability now exists in a way it didn't before because the stuff's on tape. The stuff is on tape. Who else wants to jump in there about, uh, about identifying 
manipulation of history, indoctrination. Yeah, um, yeah. I, go ahead, Stacey. Oh, well, no, I, I was just going to say, to piggyback off of what Richard said, you can also just ask them, um, so you can find the curriculum instruction uh, por portion of your school districts. It's on the website. You can go to the curriculum instruction portal and see what, you know, what is what is the standard for the grade level for the, the grade your child is going to be entering. And then it'll it'll actually list the resources. Um, it'll often even list all the books that are available, you know, for that particular class, that grade level. Um, and then you can also go to the library at your child's school. So each of the grammar schools has a library. You can go there, talk to the librarian and talk about what each grade level um, is working through what books are the ones that they're definitely going to be able to check out or they're going to have assignments on and then you can look at them and then so it doesn't take very long once you're on the site to kind of get a feel for the bent that the school is going for and they'll often because they're so proud of their work to become you know more racially diverse or have equity they'll say we're using courageous conversations which is a big deal back when my daughter was little um, and the, the subsequent kids i tried to limit that as much as possible but the school counselor is often involved in that as well so you can look at any one of those areas on the school's website and usually find it and then Richard said, watch those seminars. If you go back and watch some of the ones that went on during COVID, you'll get a really good feel for what the teachers are like. Well, you know, it just brought to mind, Stacey, thank you for that. Just like we have movie reviews and book reviews, I don't know what's out there, uh, guys, you know better than I, and maybe we need more of this. We need people who are reviewing these books, these textbooks, and make it available in one place, because I'm sure these books are being used in many places, the same books being used in many places. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a resource Here's here's our review from a conservative perspective. This book, this book, this book, and that book. That would could be a useful thing. Just putting it out there uh, for the for the smarter people than me to make it happen. Uh, Will, uh, did you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I, that's a great idea, Joe. Yeah, just just one other thing, and, and I think I think Richard and Stacy both both said it very well. But you know, I think in being plugged into our our kids' school, like we talked about owning our kids' education, a component of that I think is is um, having your children be the eyes and ears a bit too, you know, asking them, what are you learning? Like, what, what, what are you learning in social studies? What are you learning in, you know, in history? Um, and then, you know, reviewing their, their textbooks when, they're, when they bring them home and things like that. But I think, I think linking up with your kids in that way too, just allows you to have better, better insights and visibility to then take those next steps when you have concerns. Yes, I, I'm sure it can be difficult sometimes to get your, to get your children to kind of tell you what exactly they've learned that day and really yeah. but you know you know how that can go other questions in the queue and we got about uh about another five minutes or so here guys as we're wrapping up terrific engagement um how can parents best get involved in curriculum development there's a question best get involved in actual curricula development who's got some thoughts on that you can serve on the curriculum and instruction committee um, in all the districts that we've ever been in the curriculum and instruction committee was uh, comprised of teachers and parents and so you just say i want to serve on that committee usually that if you come in cold and they've never met you before um, you might not get on the first year but they're open there are no criteria for serving like it's it's not like you have to have a certain thing or you don't it's not like you submit a resume for it you're if you're in the district and you're a parent or if you're a taxpayer in the district, you can serve on the committee. That's the way you can help decide what gets taught in every classroom during those four or four and a half hours of daily instruction. Uh, but I, I also, I can't stress enough, like you, Will was saying, it's the backpack. 
um, one of the moms that I met years ago, she had, she, her kids were graduating out and we were just coming in and she said, your best information source is your child's backpack. Every night you get the papers out of it and you read every piece of paper that's in there. And then if you don't understand what's going on, you reach out to the teacher. You can also show up to school and say, what's in my child's folder? Because your teacher maintains a folder of your child's work and you can review that as well, which is easier to review if you go for parent-teacher conference, as Richard said. The parent-teacher conference is literally the autopsy of your child's time during the semester. How parents can miss that, I'll never know. We've learned so much about our kids at parent-teacher conference. <laughs> we usually have the conference, my husband and I go, then afterwards we go out to dinner, we discuss what we learned, then we talk to the kids about it. And it's like an ongoing conversation when you, oh, I remember her telling me that such and so-and-so. Is that what you're working on now? And your kids will be like, oh, are you interested in this? And they will just come over to you and pour themselves out because they're like, wow, my mom knows I'm working on so-and-so. It's a, it's a, it, you'll just wow. never, if you do it once, I'm telling you, you'll get hooked on it. I'm, I'm wondering who am I going to check up on when this last one who's graduating next month? What am I going to check up on? What what am I going to do? I don't have any more parent-teacher conferences. What will my hobby be? What what will I do? <laughs> tremendous, tremendous level of commitment, Stacey. Just really, really inspiring. Uh, either of you guys want to jump in on that on that question about uh, getting involved in curricular development? Uh, we have uh, uh, just a few minutes left because we wanted to get to maybe resources if we could about resources you would recommend maybe if that's maybe a preferable route to go as we're wrapping up here. Resources. Let's do that, uh, guys. What would you recommend? Textbooks, other resources, other organizations that these parents need to know about, and we can we can get that out to them in, in written form as well as a follow-up. But let's throw it out there right now, in kind of a roundabout as we could. Your favorite resources? Yeah, I can. Okay. I can, I can pick that up. Um, I think you know, and it, it builds exactly on what Stacy was saying. Yeah, I think there's a there's a few different sections. So there's books, right? And and there's a couple of books I've really enjoyed. So The Land of Hope by Wilfred McClay. Uh, which is just a great I think, history for more, more, you know, high school age, but just tells it tells the story right in an honest and, and captivating way. Uh, my mom used to read us the history of us books by by Joy Hakeem, and those are those are memorable and, and very good. And then you know, on the resources front, right? So I've really I really liked getting getting to explore the uh, Prager use resources for educators and parents mm -hmm. prep for short. You know, videos, reading lists, activities for kids, links to other curriculum, uh, like the 1776 Unites curriculum, which is which is which is great Hillsdale curriculum, and then parent action guides too, which I think are which are really valuable. Um, and then just you know, I, I think another another kind of section is uh, groups like Parents Defending Education. Right, it's a new group, but it helps parents to identify and address concerns, promote alternatives. And uh, and they've they've helped me actually in, in some of the stuff we've done here in Colorado, uh, and, and and there's really just a lot of a lot of great resources out there. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Rick, you want to jump in with some favorite resources? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of great resources out there. Uh, one of the resources I like is Stossel in the Classroom. It uh, really has a balanced approach to subjects, you know, economics, government. Uh, you know, it has just great resources. The National said, Constitution sorry, you said, Center. You said Stossel, Stossel in the classroom, S-T-O-S-S-E-L? Yeah, Stossel, John Stossel in the classroom. Um, okay. And so that's that's one of those that I think, and I could just pop these inside the um, the chat as soon as we finish. So I'll go sure. ahead and, and blast those out. Uh, the National Constitution Center has great resources. I, for me, my biggest thing is I always want to try to present both sides of the issue. 
And what I like about these is they really do try to give you the best of both sides, you know, and so you might have uh, a particular topic, an amendment or so, and you might have the perspective of, you know, Neil Gorsuch, and you might have the perspective of Sonia Sotomayor. And at least what you're doing is you're getting both sides. And I think that's imperative. iCivics has a lot of really good activities that are quite interactive uh, for the students. Bill of Rights Institute has some good things. Liberty Fund has blogs and videos and podcasts and book reviews and things like that. So there are a lot of really good resources out there uh, that I would really encourage you. And, and again, the good thing is almost all of these have like teacher manuals too, if, you know, if, if that helps you out as a parent, uh, because obviously you, you want the best resources possible uh, for your kids. Great. And Stacy, we got about a minute left. If you can give us, give us your top 10 or whatever it is for resources. Oh, so I got a minute to get out like on radio. I can do it. So I recommend <laughs> the book Growing in Prayer by Mike Bickle. Um, if you are a Christian and person of faith and you want to have a, a better prayer life, because being a parent is it, it, you really if you want to do it right, you need to be a person of prayer because how else can you do it on your own? It's, a, it's such a difficult proposition being a parent in America today. So Growing in Prayer. Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. This one is by Myron Magnet, but I recommend you read his autobiography and then read this book afterwards because this teaches you all about how the Supreme Court, it's been wrong a lot. So we don't need to act like it's Bible. It's actually just a bunch of people making decisions on our behalf and we should not revere them. We should hold them to account. And then this book, uh, America's Providential History, this is a great book for kids. It's great for adults. It's illustrated and it has a ton of great information about our history in it. And then, of course, Liberty University, they have online classes for high schoolers. Hillsdale College has an amazing program that you can interface with anywhere in the world. Uh, and then anything by Dennis Prager. Um, and I just recommend conservative radio, not just because I'm on it, but because that's almost, you know, pain-free listening. You just listen and you pick up information that you can use to talk to your kids about, about current events. Um, and I just out of audible, that's how you can get one book a weekend is if you download the audible app and put the book you want to read on into your ear, you can get more books listened to they're read and you get that information and then you can move on to the next one. Absolutely fabulous guys. I'd be remiss. Thank you so much for that. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention at least on the heritage side, our, our guide to the constitution, which is online also available, I think in book form, terrific resource uh, commentary on the constitution. I want to thank this panel again, this all-star panel again, for joining us. Thank you all in the audience out there for joining us. Session two will be happening uh, in the near future. Stay tuned for uh, announcements about that. But thank you again. What a wonderful session, guys. Thank you so much.